Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another edition of my podcast. This is Kennedy Hall reporting to you from wherever you download your podcast, YouTube, other podcast platforms like Spotify, etc., etc. We're going to talk today about the SSPX response to the Bishop Strickland situation, as well as a compare and contrast between Archbishop Lefebvre and Bishop Strickland, because I do see that sort of theme floating around. Uh, of course, um, some people are favorable of the comparison. Some people are not favorable of the comparison. In addition, I do see a lot of people sort of starting to, I hate using the term wake up because you sound like one of those, you know, I don't know, uh, conspiracy types. Not that there's anything wrong with conspiracies, but the, you know, I wish people would just wake up. And what they really mean is they need to see things the way I see it. Otherwise they're not awake. But there is an aspect of, yes, people are starting to, let's say, get hip or uh, to the situation, or they're starting to ask themselves questions that people who have been fans of Archbishop Lefebvre have been asking for a long time. And are the situations that we're dealing with now uh, any different than what was being dealt with in the 1970s and 80s? Is it comparable to say that uh, Bishop Strickland is in a Lefebvre-type situation and whatever? Um, is there any path forward for Bishop Strickland to do anything? Should he do anything beyond sort of, you know, public speaking and whatever? These are all things I want to I don't know if we'll consider every single aspect of that, but I want to lay the groundwork for the situation we're in. And I want to compare and contrast Lefebvre, Strickland, what's the same, what's different, uh, providentially, where did Lefebvre find himself, where does Strickland find himself? And also, if you're someone who is in a position now where you're starting to see things in a different way because you're a Strickland fan and so forth, you got to ask yourself, well, what's any different now between what happened in the 70s and between what happens now and in the 70s? Did Bishop Archbishop Lefebvre have more justification to kind of take his course, etc.? I mean, these are things we're going to consider. So before we do that, though, please, if you are a fan of this show, I uh, urge you to consider being a subscriber either through YouTube memberships or through Substack. If you go through the Substack, the link for that is in the description to this uh, recording or video, wherever you're listening or watching. And uh, it's pretty simple. And you can sign up as a free subscriber, uh, but you won't get access to the goodies, um, which are illuminated uh, in the uh, Substack itself. Um, uh, but if you do sign up, I think it's a few dollars a month. It's uh, a way to help me continue doing this. You can sign up through YouTube memberships. And uh, there are perks there as well that are laid out in those uh, descriptions to those things. And um, uh, it's a few bucks a month up to whatever you want to pay. So uh, thank you for all your support. And okay, let's get to it. So, well, here is the SSPX's response to what happened. So they released an article yesterday from their news source, news outlet, fsxpx.news. And it's called United States Pope Francis Removes Bishop Strickland from Office. So here's the article. The facts. The dicastery led a formal investigation in the Diocese of Tyler earlier this year, which ended in June. The apostolic visitation, to use the canonical term, was led by Bishop Dennis Sullivan, Bishop of Camden, New Jersey, and Bishop Gerald Kincanas, Bishop Emeritus of Tucson, Arizona. Adding to one source, the apostolic visitation focused on the Bishop of Tyler's use of social media, as well as questions related to the management of the diocese. As a result of the visitation, the recommendation was made to the Holy Father that the continuation in office of Bishop Strickland was not feasible, Cardinal Donato wrote in his statement of November 11th. The statement continues, After months of careful consideration by the dicastery for bishops and the Holy Father, 
and the, de uh, the decision was reached that the resignation of Bishop Strickland should be requested. Having been presented with that request on November 9th, 2023, Bishop Strickland declined to resign from office. Thereafter, on November 11th, the Holy Father removed Bishop Strickland from the office of the Bishop of Tyler. Bishop Strickland, 65 years old, has been Bishop of Tyler, uh, Bishop of the Diocese of Tyler, which is subordinate to the Archdiocese of Galveston-Houston since 2012, uh, 11 years now. The very popular Texan bishop has been criticized for his use of social media, especially his tweet from May 12th uh, when he suggested that Pope Francis has been undermining the deposit of faith, which is true, by the way. The Vatican has not given a reason for the bishop's dismissal. There's the money line. So the, the SSBX is just reporting the facts, et cetera, et cetera. And then it goes on to give some opinions of this, and I think this is the most important. This section of the article is called A Synodal Tyrant. It is important to note that relieving a bishop from office is a rare event. Normally, motivated by grave errors, that does not appear to be the case here, even if we ignore the results of the apostolic visitation. We must also note that Bishop Strickland has shown himself to be particularly incisive against the synod and synodality. He wrote a courageous letter appearing in August to warn his diocese of certain novelties incompatible with the faith that would be discussed at the synod. While the late motif of the Synod was listening to all, and in particular to those who feel excluded, Bishop Strickland was entitled to treatment that could that could qualify as clericalist in the sense of an authoritarianism that the Pope has not ceased to exercise since the start of his pontificate. Thus, or sorry, there are thus very distinct limits to the listening proposed. If we compare the treatment reserved for this bishop with that of priests and a deed of bishops whose doctrine is nothing less than defective, the injustice is even more blatant. It is truly tyrannical. Pretty strong words. So according to the, and this is not the official position of the SSBX per se, that's, you know, that's not how it works, but according to this news outlet run by the, FS, the SSBX, they're calling what has happened to Bishop Strickland tyrannical, especially in light of everything else. And that's important to illuminate. So, um, you know, there's an expression where we say personnel's policy, Right. What does this mean? Well, the way that you treat people and who is on your team really is what you believe. It's kind of an extension of the idea of actions speak louder than words. The fact that Pope Francis does have the most detestable human beings in high positions of the church, and he kicks out men like Bishop Strickland, this is an example of personnel's policy. James Martin's in, Bishop Strickland's out. You see how this goes. Um, in addition, there is a false dichotomy here. A lot of these commentators who are defending the removal of Bishop Strickland, they're like, I'm for both the, you know, I, I'm against the far right extremist and I'm against the liberals. Well, Bishop Strickland's not a far right extremist. And what is a far right extremist? It's a meaningless term. The, the fact is, is that when the law is not applied equitably, then it loses its value. It loses its power over people. This is what happened during the COVID thing. I don't know if I'll ever be able to trust the police in Canada ever again. I mean that. Living through what we went through. You know, um, defending Black Lives Matter protests, defending whatever, all that stupid nonsense. But then, you know, walking into church buildings on Easter to kick people out. I'll never be able to trust those idiots ever again. They're all a bunch of coward, you know, yokels in my mind. Um at least they're higher ups and they, and the people underneath them defended it. So it is what it is. I'll never be able to trust them. They've ruined it. Um, 
This is tyranny, what is happening. It is, the, it is the definition of what tyranny is. Tyranny does not just mean Joseph Stalin. Tyranny is using the law in a way against the purpose of it and squashing and crushing your dissenters. That's what tyranny is. Okay, so that's the background. We know this. You've probably heard a thousand things on Bishop Strickland. So let's give a unique perspective here. Because the question that we have to ask ourselves now is, what is the man to do? And I'm not asking Bishop Strickland to do anything. I'm not imploring him to do anything. I'm not putting any words in his mouth. I've never had any communication with Bishop Strickland. If you're listening, Your Excellency, I'd love to talk to you. Just you seem like a wonderful man. Um, I'm not. I'm not even suggesting he should do anything. And I'm not saying I know that he will do anything. This is purely in the hypothetical, everyone. Okay. So the obvious comparison that people are starting to bring up is the comparison between Bishop Archbishop Lefebvre and Bishop Strickland. And on, on the one hand, they are very similar, and I'll explain. So I want to, you know, a lot, uh, people focus on sort of the later parts of Archbishop Lefebvre's life, the consecrations of the bishops and so forth. Uh, but people have to go back to the very beginning. So the, art, the, the Society of St. Pius X was formed, was established in the normal way. That's a, you know, canon law, legalese, blah, blah, blah. But it was formed in the, in the, in the normal way. And then eventually, what happened? Well, 1973, 1974, I think it was in 1974, there was this thing released called the Declaration. And I'm going to read the Declaration of Archbishop Lefebvre here and then um, give you the context. So here we have the Declaration. So this Declaration was the 1974 Declaration, and here is the background. So it was an affirmation of the Catholic faith in response to the modernist crisis afflicting the post-conciliar church. On November 21st, 1974, Archbishop Lefebvre, scandalized by the opinions expressed by the two apostolic visitors, we're going to talk about that in a sec, drew up for his seminarians in a spirit of doubtlessly excessive indignation, the famous declaration uh, as his stand against modernism. Okay, so 10 days before, this is the visitation, Two apostolic visitors from Rome arrived at the Society of St. Pius X Seminary in Econ. During their brief stay, they spoke to the seminarians and professors, maintaining scandalous opinions such as the ordination of married men will soon be a normal thing, true things, true change, truth changes with times, um, with the times, and the traditional conception of the resurrection of our Lord is open to discussions. That's just some of the things they discussed. So why was there a visit? This is the why was there a visitation? of the seminary in the first place? That's the question you need to be asking yourself. The reason is, is because there was a smear campaign. The French bishops, who were very liberal, the French bishops were some of the worst in the church during the 1970s. They hated Archbishop Lefebvre. You see, Archbishop Lefebvre, he spent so much time in Africa that he was outside of the European milieu. It was a good thing because he was in a place where all they really cared about was getting people baptized to stop worshiping totem poles, take them away from the grips of Islam, and teach them the catechism. Archbishop Lefebvre didn't have time to get into speculative theology. He didn't have time to, you know, go to universities to listen to lectures by modernists. Uh, in a sense, he was protected while he was there. I'm not saying he would have fallen into it. I'm just saying that was the situation. He was called a wild Long before there was a visitation, long before there was a suspension, anything, the French bishops were doing things like saying, it's a wildcat seminary. But here's the thing. If you actually read the report by the seminary, the, sorry, the seminary visitors from Rome, 
they talk about it being an amazing place. They talk about it just being, oh, wonderful. It's a wonderful place. It's like Brian Holdsworth did a show. It was really good, Brian, if you're listening to this, bravo on that. Um, and uh, Brian Holdsworth knows Bishop Strickland. He knows the diocese. He's worked with them professionally. And he's like, it's a great place. I mean, there's no problems there. You know, anyone who knows them, you know Bishop Strickland. He's not a fire breather. He's just a... And Archbishop Lefebvre was very similar. Archbishop Lefebvre, they called him the gentle pig-headed man. Okay, it sounds a little better in French. Um, meaning he was so gentle, but he was unshakable. That's the pig-headed part, you know. Um, he was not tall. He was not a big man. He was a, he was a very smiley man. It's very hard to find a picture of him not smiling. He was, he was, he was a grandpa, you know. He was... You know, I, I wish I knew him in person. He was... Uh, people talk about knowing him. He was just, he was very gentle. He was a very gentle man, which was why the accusations against him being this fire breather were so out of touch. And the reason why this apostolic visitation took place was because of a smear campaign. That wasn't true. In fact, they didn't even care that much about the the, visit the visitors didn't even care that much about the mass. I don't have it cited. I have my biography of Lefebvre here. I, it's like 700 pages. I can't remember the exact page, but it's funny when they did the report, they said the doctrine's great. The life is great, etc. The only thing that's, uh, you know, that's, uh, not really what's going on right now, you know, not, not up to snuff the way we want things. You know, it's the question of the mass, you know, they still say the old mass, but the visitors literally said, but that's not that big of a deal. They didn't even care. It was a wonderful place. But the thing is, these modernists, they scandalize the seminarians. So if you're a father, what should you do? Your, your children are scandalized. Should you just leave it silent? No, you should respond to it. And this, this declaration right here was originally meant just for the seminarians. And here's what it was. We hold fast with all our heart and with all our soul to Catholic Rome, guardian of the Catholic faith and of the traditions necessary to preserve this faith to eternal Rome, mistress of wisdom and truth. Um, we refuse, on the other hand, and have always refused to follow the Rome of neo-modernist and neo-Protestant tendencies, which were clearly evident in the Second Vatican Council and after the Council, in all the reforms which issued from it. I'm going to pause here. Neo-modernist and neo-Protestant tendencies in the Second Vatican Council and after the Council. That's perfectly correct in how to say it. Neo-modernist tendencies. And why do I harp on that for just a second here? People will say, oh, Archbishop Lefebvre said the Second Vatican Council, the, the church was defective, the, the positive heresy, blah, blah, blah. Neo-Protestant, neo-modernist tendencies. You are, even if you're a traditionalist who likes Vatican II, you are lying to me if you say there are not neo-modernist tendencies. What is neo-modernism? Neo-modernism, go read. And actually, I'll just bring it up here. Why not? Uh, if you read in Humani Generis by uh, Pope Pius XII, in paragraph, I'm going to say it's paragraph 13, 15, maybe something like that. Uh, let's see, let's see, let's see. Okay, here it is, paragraph 15. I'll read it. Moreover, they assert that when Catholic doctrine has been reduced to this condition, a way will be found to satisfy modern needs that will permit of dogma being expressed also by the concepts of modern philosophy, whether of immanentism or idealism or existentialism or any other system. Think of the new theology, sort of a general re rejection of Thomism. Some more audacious affirm that this canon must be done because they hold that the mysteries of faith are never expressed by truly adequate concepts, but only by approximate and ever-changeable notions in which the truth is to some extent expressed, but is necessarily distorted. Wherefore, now I'm going to pause there. If you're someone who thinks it mythologizes Genesis, you are doing this even if you think you're Orthodox, you are a neo-modernist. 
there's a plain sense of Genesis. There's things that are not in Genesis, but there's a plain sense to it. If you just turn it into a complete allegory, that is neo-modernism. Continuing, wherefore they do not consider it absurd, but altogether necessary that theology should substitute new concepts in place of the old ones in keeping with the various philosophies, which in the course of time it, is, it, uh, it uses as its instruments, so that it should give human expression to divine truths in various ways, which are even somewhat opposed, but still equivalent, as they say. They add that the history of dogmas consists in the reporting of the various forms in which revealed truth has been clothed, forms that have succeeded one another in accordance with the different teachings and opinions that have arisen over the course of the centuries. So basically, this is Pope Pius XII saying, because he's writing about neo-modernism in this document, whereas Pope Pius X wrote about modernism in Pashendi. Pope Pius XII is saying, this is how modernists act today. They're sneakier. They propose things that aren't necessarily heretical, but in order to understand their way of thinking, you must at least tacitly reject the way things were understood before. And you have to have this belief that you should do that because the way that things need to be expressed has changed. That is the ethos of the tendencies behind the inspiration for the Second Vatican Council. The council is about reaching modern man. So whether or not someone in the council writes something that is a positive heresy, that's irrelevant. Well, it's not irrelevant, but people get lost in the weeds with that. You can still turn people into heretics without preaching heresy to them. If you teach students, uh, if you teach students like uh, existentialist philosophy as their philosophical system, and then still teach them catechism of the Catholic Church, you shouldn't be surprised that when they're done high school, they're not going to believe in Catholicism. Because existentialist philosophy, as a way of thinking, distorts their ability to understand Catholicism. So this is what Archbishop Lefebvre is saying about the council and after the council. The tendencies are there for neo-modernism. And they are there because Pope Pius XII, 13 year, 12 years before the council starts, is talking about the fact that these neo-modernist tendencies exist in the church. It's not, it's not very hard to understand. People need to, you know, this is... I'll get back to the thing in a second here. But people need to understand the real traditionalist critiques of the Second Vatican Council, the real traditionalist critiques of the New Mass and so on and so forth, they're much more profound and measured and three-dimensional than the online blogosphere of, you know, just screaming about the New Mass or the Council. These aren't dummies. Archbishop Lefebvre was not a dummy. You know, men like Roberto de Matei, these, these men are not dummies. Romario, these various, you know, these men are not dummies. They're not, uh, Archbishop Lefebvre signed the documents at the Second Vatican Council because it was clear they didn't contain a positive definition of a heresy in them. But everyone knows that the council presented itself with a, the, the spirit of the council is in the council. People like to pretend it's not. It is. The, the way that the documents are presented, the 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 initial, this is this is why, Sometimes I get frustrated with traditionalists who look at the council 70 years later, 50 years, whatever, how many years later, as a traditionalist. But they forget that at the time, it was a presupposed conclusion that there was a necessity to speak to modern man in modern ways. That was the basis. So you can't avoid the quote unquote spirit of Vatican II within the council considering the spirit that it took place under. Okay. Here is, um, here you go. 
Continuing with the Declaration, all these reforms indeed have contributed and are still contributing to the destruction of the Church, to the ruin of the priesthood, to the abolition of the sacrifice of the Mass and of the sacraments, to the disappearance of religious life, to a naturalist and Teardian teaching in universities, seminaries, and catechetics, a teaching derived from liberalism and Protestantism, many times condemned by the solemn magisterium. No authority, not even the highest in the Church, in the hierarchy, can force us to abandon or diminish our Catholic faith, so clearly expressed and professed by Church of the Church's magisterium for many centuries. Pause here. Has he said anything heretical here? Has he even called the Pope any names? Has he said anything wrong? Anything untrue? Everything was true. There are stories of Pope Paul VI weeping as he signed away the documents, signed the, the release letters of nuns and priests leaving the, leaving the religious life. It was happening in the thousands. The Mass was, I mean, everyone who lived through the 70s knows the Mass was going under a disaster. Uh, the naturalists and Teardian teaching universities. Teilhard de Chardin was all the rage. He's just pointing out the facts. He's just pointing out the facts. And it's true. What was happening, the current in the church was based on liberalism and Protestantism. We know this because the church has, well, the, the various, you know, who's who in the church have done everything they can to get us to sing Kumbaya with the Protestants. I mean, goodness gracious, it's as clear as day. He continues, or sorry, I should say, is he wrong in saying not even the highest, uh, high, highest in the hierarchy can force us to abandon or diminish our Catholic faith? See, this is what the Pope's planners and the critics of traditionalists don't understand. Even the idea that you would make somebody diminish their faith, you can't do that. Nobody can do that. That's an abomination. That's a crime against Christ. So if a bishop or the Pope, you know, people get caught up in these, well, the church is still indefectible. Yeah, that's a, how should I put this? Sometime, one time someone was talking about Medjugorje and they were, they were, they were citing one of the theologians saying, well, look, I didn't find any positive heresy in, in uh, Medjugorje. It's like, we would be lucky if we could find positive heresy in Medjugorje. That would make it easier. The point is, is that it's, it's much deeper than that is the problem with Medjugorje. That's the thing with, with, we need to understand that the, the black and white is important, but you need to understand the gray. Yes, objectively speaking, the gates of hell will not prevail. But there is no promise by our Lord that Peter won't be a scoundrel. There's no promise by our, there's no promise by our Lord that P Peter will not pro promote and encourage and unofficially give his blessing to actual heresy. We only have a we only have a, 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 a promise that Peter will not, you know, positively teach against the faith, and the church history seems to confirm that. That's the promise we have. We don't have any promise that the way that non-infallible statements are written in councils will be written will not cause confusion and destruction. We have no promise against that. Use your reason, people. Stop being these lemmings. Use your critical thinking skills, for goodness sake. He continues, but though we, says St. Paul, or an angel from heaven preach a gospel that you besides, to you besides that which we have preached to you, let him be anathema. So this is from scripture. He continues, it is not this that the Holy Father is, is it not this that the Holy Father is repeating to us today? And if we can discern a certain contradiction in his words and deeds, as well as in those of the dicasteries, well, we choose what was always taught and we turn a deaf ear to the novelties destroying the church. Yeah. Bishop Strickland saying basically things like that. I reject Pope Francis's 
plan of undermining the faith. By the way, to undermine something does not mean to destroy it. Okay? Uh, if a priest has female altar boys, that's undermining the faith. They're not destroying the validity of the Mass, but they're undermining the Mass. You have to think about it like that. So, yes, Pope Francis is undermining the faith. Of course he is. All the popes since Vatican II have undermined the faith in some way. It is impossible to modify profoundly the Lex Orandi without modifying the Lex Crenetti. Bang on. You can't change the way that people pray without changing how they believe. He continues. To the Novus Ordo Mise correspond a new catechism, a new priesthood, new seminaries, a charismatic Pentecostal church, all things opposed to orthodoxy and the perennial teaching of the church. Bango. This reformation, born of liberalism and modernism, is poisoned through and through. It derives from heresy and ends in heresy. Let's pause there. It ends in heresy. Very important distinction. It is derived from heresy and ends in heresy. I was just listening to Father Maudsley this morning. He was talking about one of the guys who designed uh, the, um, what's it called? Nostra Aetate, which is not binding on Catholics, by the way. The bishop, the, the, the Romans admitted this, by the way. Um, in any case, um, was one of the principal architects was a Father Gregory Baum. He ended up being a total, he actually ended up being a homosexual and he ended up being a heretic. He left the priesthood, whatever, whatever. He was a convert from Judaism. This is a perfect example. Started in heresy. Judaism is heresy. He brought his Judeo, whatever, Judaizing beliefs into the church. This is very clear. And you can go read the, go listen to the episode from Father Mosley. It's his most recent podcast. It's about Strickland and these things. And ends in heresy. It ended in heresy. This is Hans Kung. This is all these, you know, these guys who, who really just were liberal Protestants and wanted to bring that into the church. So they did it in a way that was not, um, objective. They did, they did it in a way where it was a Trojan horse. This is like, Dietrich von Hildebrand talking about the Trojan horse in the city of God. They did it in a way where they could clothe liberal Protestantism in terms that technically speaking could be acceptable to Catholic theologians. But the end of that is heresy, which is what we've seen. Continues. Even if all its acts are not formally heretical. Exactly what I'm just saying. It is therefore impossible for any conscientious and faithful Catholic to espouse this reformation or to submit to it in any way whatsoever. The only attitude of faithfulness to the church and Catholic doctrine in view of our salvation is a categorical refusal to accept this reformation. Exactly. This, that is why, without any spirit of rebellion, bitterness, or resentment, we pursue our work of forming priests with the timeless magisterium as our guide. We are persuaded by, uh, that we can render no greater service to the Holy Catholic Church, to the sovereign pontiff, and to posterity. That is why we hold fast to all that has been delivered, believed, and practiced in the faith, morals, liturgy, teaching of the catechism, formation of the priest, and institution of the church, by the church of all time, to all these things as codified in those books which saw day, which saw day before the modernist influence on the council. This we shall do until such time that the true light of tradition dis, uh, dissipates the darkness, obscuring the sky of eternal Rome. By doing this with the grace of God and the help of the Blessed Virgin Mary and that of St. Joseph and St. Pius X, we are assured of remaining faithful to the Roman Catholic Church and to all the successors of Peter and of being the fidelis dispensatores misteriorum domini nostri Jesu Christi in Spiritus Sancto. Amen. Has anything Archbishop Lefebvre said in that declaration? Wrong. No. And again, what is the, con what is the context of this declaration? A smear campaign against the archbishop and the seminary based on lies, a visitation by 
people sent from Rome who found the seminary to be great, uh, but who scandalized the seminarians. And then Archbishop Lefebvre releases a declaration to his seminarians. It was later leaked to his seminarians. I don't know the context of how it was leaked, by the way, so don't jump to any conclusions. I actually don't have that information on the top of my head. Um, but to his seminarians expressing the Catholic faith, we reject the plan of destruction. By the way, Paul VI talked about the church in a state of auto-demolition. All of these things that Archbishop Lefebvre was saying, he was categorizing, cataloging everything that was known by all Catholics who believed the faith and said, I'm finally going to stand up for it. That is where Archbishop Lefebvre and Bishop Strickland are very, very similar and is why I applaud him to the highest degree. If you look at what Bishop Strickland has said in his statements and so forth, he's very clear. And the funny thing is, he doesn't even sound like a traditionalist. That's not a slight. He sounds like a, 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 a you know, sort of a mainstream conservative bishop. I want to spread the gospel. I want to bring the truth of Jesus Christ. I want people to love the sacred heart of Jesus. He sounds like a very spiritual man. He's a very holy man. And just like in the situation with Archbishop Lefebvre, there was a smear campaign. Goodness knows there was a smear campaign. And there was a hit job. Because what happened after this declaration is basically, uh, uh, by Archbishop Lefebvre, basically Annuncio comes, sound familiar to the Bishop Strickland situation? Annuncio comes and says, say the new mass with me and all this goes away. Meaning, say the new mass and you will be fine. Here's the thing. You can read in uh, um, you can read in Chris Ferrara's book, The Great Facade. Uh, in 1986, John Paul II asked his inner circle, including Cardinal Ratzinger, did Pope Paul VI ever abrogate the traditional Latin Mass? And they all said no, he didn't. Or nine out of eight of them, or eight out of nine, excuse me, said no. Pope Benedict knew this information, and this is why when he became Pope in 2007, he could release the letter Samorum Pontificum saying it was never abrogated. Why John Paul II didn't make it very clear? I mean, can you like the the entire suspension of Archbishop Lefebvre was based on the fact that he wouldn't say the new mass. That's what it was. That's what it came down to. Why on earth would John Paul II not lift, not recognize there should be no suspension because it was never abrogated? Especially when you knew that information. John Paul II failed woefully in the case of Archbishop Lefebvre as an administrator. It was a terrible thing that he did. It just has to be said. He could have fixed the situation with a snap of fingers, releasing a letter saying, well, the traditional Latin mass was never abrogated. So any suspension on Archbishop Lefebvre for not saying the traditional Latin, for not saying the new mass, this is invalid. This is like, imagine they suspended uh, a Byzantine priest because he wouldn't say the traditional mass. That's insane. That's insane. You can't do that. It's not his mass. Custom has the force of law in the church. This is, this is Aquinas 101. The new mass was promulgated as a missal. There's a debate about whether it was listed or not. There's some traditional theologians like um, Lamont that you can read about that. Dr. Kwasniewski considers the issue as well. But either way, the old mass was never abrogated. You were in, this is why uh, Pope Benedict said in his letter to Pontificum that you can say the old mass or the new mass. You don't even really have to ask permission for it because you're a Roman Catholic priest. You can just simply say the Roman Catholic mass and therefore you're under no obligation to say the mass. You don't want to say if they're both just the mass. The persecution of Archbishop Lefebvre was based on lies from day one. And the suspension of Archbishop Lefebvre was based on a legal falsehood, based on the notion that there was a suspension of the old mass, which there wasn't. In practice, there was, but not, not by law. 
Now, there's a robust defense that I give of this from a legal perspective in my book, SSPX, The Defense, and there's a way to do it with canon law because there's a question of sanation by Paul VI, and these are all legal terms. And again, I address this, 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 uh, I address this very specifically in my book. Um, but we don't even need to go to canon law because we have to say to ourselves, wait, something that wasn't legal was alleged about somebody and then he was penalized because of something that wasn't real? Yeah, that's what happened. If you, have, if you can rub two sticks together to make a fire, if you have the ability to walk and chew gum, you can understand that that is simply wrong. So the question becomes, well, we know that something like this has happened to, to Bishop Strickland because there's no rationale for this at all. And they're never going to release it, by the way. If you think that the Pope is ever going to release the real reasons, he's not going to, because there are no reasons, for one. Um, but he's also never going to release them because he's never going to give the conservatives a bone. He's never going to reply to the dubia from the traditional-minded bishops asking about Amoris Laetitia. But he will respond to the dubia saying, sure, you can go get trannies baptized, even if the uh, godfather is wearing a miniskirt and calling himself godmother. That's fine. So here comes the question, and, and I want to read something here from Archbishop Lefebvre's biography. And, and this is a money line, or sorry, it's an important thing because this is the situation. So this is in the context of January 19th, or January 12th, 1979. So here's what it says. It's on page, page 571. On January 12th, 1979, he was questioned by theologians of the Holy Office about the principle guiding his activities as a bishop in disobeying the letter of canon law. So here's the question people are asking about Strickland. Should he do things that are against the law? Well, here's what Archbishop Lefebvre said, because Archbishop Lefebvre was in a different situation uh, providentially, and this is why I think their situations, this is where they're very different. Archbishop Lefebvre had a legitimately erected Society of Apostolic Life and a seminary that was already started. So he didn't start something new. He continued what I'm doing. There's a very big difference there. Bishop Strickland is not in a position to continue doing, Bishop Strickland is not in a position to start something. If Bishop Strickland were to go just start a seminary tomorrow or start an order, that would be sketchy just because it would just be sketchy. Now, I'm not saying it wouldn't be possible, and we'll we'll talk about why that's even possible. I'm just saying the optics of that would be sketchy. But the situation with Lefebvre is different because he's just continuing what he's doing. There's a difference there. Um, so, principles disobeying canon law. Or even going against the formal prohibition of the Pope. He replied, no, I do not act starting from a principle. So Lefebvre saying, I'm not starting from some principle. This is not some plan. This is not some some philosophy. He says, it was the facts, the circumstances in which I found myself that constrained me to act. So, you know, when you're backed into a corner, you don't get to think about overarching principles of hypothetical ways of being. You just simply have to be. You have to defend yourself. Archbishop Lefebvre is saying, I was in a corner, so I looked at the facts, and the context is, well, these seminarians are not going to be able to... These seminarians... These seminarians are the best priests available in the church at the time. There are other traditional priests today, and, and we can debate back and forth, FSSB, SSBX, I, whatever, institute, fine. But the point is, in the 1970s, there were no traditional seminaries on earth except for the Diocese of Campos. But that site, the Diocese of Campos could not serve the universal church outside of the diocese. Archbishop Lefebvre had the vision that he would send these priests all over the world to help the faithful. The faithful needed help. The priests needed to be ordained because the faithful were suffering. That's the situation. And he goes on to, to continue. And he says, however, as he explained to his seminarians, if he needed to have recourse to a principle, he expressed it like this. And this is what it was. Noting that across entire countries, the bishops no longer exercise their authority to ensure the faithful handing on of the faith and grace. 
and seeing that even Rome seems tacitly to approve of them, this is like today, a bishop has the duty to do all in his power so that faith and grace be given to the faithful who legitimately ask for them. He does this especially by training true and holy priests formed thoroughly according to the spirit of the church, even if these priests only have a legal, fictitious incarnation, legally fictitious. In doing this, a bishop would not act against the Pope, but outside of the Pope, especially if he could no, have no contact with the Pope. Thus, he would act for the greater good of the church and for the salvation of souls, following the example of other bishops like St. Athanasius and St. Eusebius at the time of the Arians. We're going to now read quickly about St. Eusebius. So who was St. Eusebius? This is the, the when, leading up to the consecration. This is 10 years later. The Archbishop uh, avoided basing his arguments on state of occultism and reasoned as follows. The problem of the situation of the faithful and the present papacy renders obsolete the difficulties of jurisdiction, disobedience, and apostos apostolicity. Um, these notions presuppose a pope who is Catholic in his faith and in his governments of the church. The argument from history would later come to comp complete this radical reasoning. The example of St. Eusebius, Bishop of Samosote, spoke for itself. At the time of the Arian crisis, when he returned from exile, he learned that numerous local churches were in need of pastors. So he began to go throughout Syria, Phoenicia, and Palestine, ordaining priests and deacons and consecrating solidly orthodox bishops, even though he had no jurisdiction over these churches. Archbishop Lefebvre read and approved of Dom Grea's commentary. Dom Grea is like a Dom Garaget. He's one of these great biblical commentaries. He goes on, he cites Dom Grea here. So if history shows us, and I want to make sure I'm saying that right. Yep. There we go. So if history shows us bishops who took it on themselves to perform the office of doctor to failing churches, this is from the Roman breviary, Feast of St. Eusebius of Versailles. Uh, there's two names of Eusebius, Samosote, Versailles, different places. It shows us at the same time what pressing circumstances dictated this conduct. To make it legitimate, the need had to be such as to concern the very existence of religion, a situation in which the ministry of particular pastors was entirely destroyed or made ineffectual and wherein no possible recourse to the Holy See could be hoped for. Does that not sound exactly like the situation we're in today? Does that not sound exactly like the situation under Pope Francis with a man like Bishop Strickland? Recourse to the Holy See is impossible, it says. Of course recourse to the Holy See is impossible. They won't even tell him the reason he's been fired. Of course recourse to the Holy See with Bishop uh, Lefebvre was impossible. Pope John Paul II became, becomes Pope uh, talks to Archbishop Lefebvre for five minutes in 1978, then never sees him again. Archbishop Lefebvre uh, tries to have his appeal on his case. Um, Cardinal Villot just says, we're never going to do that. Appeal to the Holy See was impossible. And that is the exact same thing that is happening today. You can't have any appeal to Rome if you're a traditional or minded or conservative bishop. And if you look at the situation of the SSPX, since Rome has softened its heart towards tradition, what has happened? There has been a back and forth between the SSPX and Rome, and there's a normal relationship for the most part. So recourse to the Holy See was possible. But in a time of crisis, if it's not possible, the bishop has the duty to preserve the faith. So I don't know what Bishop Strickland's going to do in the situation. He's, and again, I'm not asking him to do anything. I'm not suggesting he do, does anything. All I'm saying is, is that we're in a position now where it is, where he is in a similar place where the faithful are starving 
and he's someone who's willing to speak up about it. These are just the facts. Now, I'm not saying he should go consecrate bishops, but but if I look at this story, let's just read this part again. What he did is he went into dioceses that were not his own and took it upon himself to perform the office of doctor to failing churches. And he, uh, you know, uh, consecrated bishops and priests, solidly orthodox bishops, deacons, and priests, even though he had no jurisdiction over these places. And this is St. Eusebius. This is not St. Eusebius the schismatic. This is St. Eusebius who Dom Grea, and if you want to know who Dom Grea is, Grea, uh, Dom Grea is, um, is, is, is a great, I'm just looking him up here. Hold on. Oh, it's only in French. Um, anyway, he's, uh, one of these, uh, this is the biography quickly says here, he stands alongside Lacordaire and Guéranger as one of the great refounders of Catholic religious life in post-revolution France. His mission was to restore regular canonical life or the common life of priests living under a rule. Toward that end, he founded the canons regular of the Immaculate Conception. He's a storied theologian. He is known as being an excellent, again, in the, we're talking about him in the realm of Dom Guéranger. Talk about a good compare, talk about a, a good a recommendation right? A stamp of approval. So anyway, point is, this is not, Bishop Strickland's in a position now where Archbishop Lefebvre, and it's different. I'm not saying they're the same. I'm just saying the meta-narrative here. We've seen this sort of thing in the church before. Archbishop Lefebvre is the model of the 20th century. We saw this in the Arian crisis with people like, with bishops like St. Eusebius. And we even see the justification for such actions. Uh, and very simply, I just want to read just real quickly there again, because it's so important. Uh, Dom, Dom, uh, Dom Grea isn't getting into canon law, etc. It just, to legitimize this, right? It shows us to make it legitimate, the need had to be such as to, con to concern the very existence of religion. Do you think there's a concern for the very existence of religion? And it doesn't mean just anyone believing in God. Religion here is used in the technical sense of the only true religion is Catholicism. Do you think Catholicism is under threat? I do. Can we really say it's not? Or it says, a situation in which the ministry of particular pastors, not all of them, just particular pastors, not every priest in the church, people think the state of necessity has to be every, no, not every single priest in the church of particular pastors was entirely destroyed or made ineffectual. So let's think about some of the, like even in a, even in a diocese with someone like Bishop, uh, um, well, think about the situation with Bishop Strickland. There are some stories coming out of the diocese of these priests who were, you know, pretty wacky, pretty wacky liberal. And it was tough for Bishop Strickland to get rid of them. So not only is he a man who his, his ministry is destroyed, but he's also a man who had a difficulty in being effectual because of the situation put in place. These nuances are important. These distinctions are important. And the action of St. Eusebius doing more than Archbishop Lefebvre did. It was, if, if I'm being honest, from a letter of the law, St. Eusebius, there's a greater argument against, for schism against St. Eusebius than there is Archbishop Lefebvre. And the reason is, again, Archbishop Lefebvre didn't go do anything new. He continued what he was doing. Whereas St. Eusebius is literally going into another diocese and setting up bishops to be in that diocese. 
That's, that's, that is like, if you saw that happen today, you'd be crying schism in a heartbeat. But this man is a saint. Because the crisis in the church was so bad during the Aryan crisis. And I would argue the crisis in the church is even worse today. I wish we could only have Arianism to deal with. Wouldn't that be nice? Instead, we have the syntheses of all heresies, which is modernism. Okay. That's enough for today. Um, please like and subscribe this video, podcast, whatever you're listening to, um, wherever you're listening to it. And also consider being a supporter. You can check out the ways to do that through YouTube memberships. If you're on YouTube, pretty simple. And also uh, you can do this through Substack. Click the Substack. And if you would like to become a paid subscriber, a few dollars a month, it helps me to keep the lights on, so to speak. All right. As always, let me know when you think of the comments. This has been the Kennedy Report. Until next time, God bless.